Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. The leadership of Hungary and Poland seemingly shared the same playbook when it came to undermining judicial independence, consolidating electoral power, regulating media ownership, and enacting laws against LGBTQ rights and abortion. They also worked together to push back against the EU's efforts to sanction member states pursuing illiberal reforms. However, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Poland has embraced Ukrainian refugees and promoted EU sanctions against Russia, while Hungary has taken a softer stance towards Russia. What are the prospects of, for these islands of illiberalism within the wider European democratic project? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Our guest this week is Edith Zgut Przybyska. Uh, She's a doctoral researcher at the Institute of Philosophy and Sociology at the Polish Academy of Sciences and vice president of Amnesty International Hungary. She's currently a fellow with Reconstitution, that's Re colon Constitution and Visegrad Insight, and was previously a fellow with the German Marshall Fund. She's a lecturer at the Foreign Service Institute of the U.S. State Department and at the University of Warsaw. She previously worked as a political analyst and journalist, and her articles and interviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Politico Europe, as well as in Hungarian media outlets. Edith holds degrees in political science from the Eötvös Lorand University in Budapest and the Balint Giorgi uh, Jour- Journalism Academy. Forgive my pronunciation of the Polish and Hungarian. Welcome to International Horizons, uh, Edith Zgutzbinska. Hello, John. Thank you for having me on the program. Okay, I'm sorry. I hope I haven't butchered your name too badly. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so. So you've lived in both Hungary and Poland, basically grew up, I guess, in in Hungary and now live in Poland. And as a journalist, policy analyst and academic, you've got firsthand insight into how those governments operate. Uh, While these countries are sometimes lumped together in discussions about illiberalism in contemporary Europe, uh, as we were saying in the introduction, they have gone their different ways in certain respects uh, since the invasion of Ukraine. So could you maybe identify a few few of the key differences you've observed between the two countries? 
Sure. And uh, let me just start by saying that I think that article writing mining leaders are usually following more or less the same uh, playbook to undermine democracy like all over the world. And at this point, I really like to refer to the, the excellent book of uh, Daniel Ziblatt and Stephen Lewitsky, who will frame it in their uh, in their work as like how democracy die? Um, first, uh, you know this kind of three steps that these these uh, leaders are doing. So they capture the referees, they sideline the key players by using state resources against them, and they rewrite the rules to till the playing field. And I think that the differences between Hungary and Poland, uh, I think it lies in three key factors. The first is about the methods of this change, so how they actually did this procedure. Um, So since the Polish government uh, didn't have a two-third majority, it could not change the constitution like Mr. Orban did uh, at least, you know, 10 times. So therefore, the process of this kind of democratic backsliding in in Poland was a lot more driven by by the violation of the of the Polish constitution. Uh, in contrast to that, uh, the Orban government uh, did not have to act in a so to say like a blatant way, because it got this constitutional supermajority, so it could implement a new fundamental law which gave them this kind of formal legal justification, you know, for for further changes. And as I said, so they changed the constitution ten times to capture the referees and sideline the opponents and the political decision is uh, making is very often formally taken in accordance with the national legislation and here comes the tricky part so so the government is not always formally violating the constitution like the Polish uh, government does um, and and I think the democratic deterioration here in, in Hungary it happens through rather to selective law enforcement and the instrumentalization of the law in order to fit you know the authoritarian uh, goal goal of the regime the second difference is uh, is the systemic outcome of this democratic uh, backsliding and Viktor Orban's Hungary I think it like performed not only democratic backsliding, but it was also autocratizing at a very great speed. So it went further down the road, like it was, you know, the regime was shifting from liberal democracy to non-democracy. Now we can call it electoral autocracy or competitive authoritarian regime, Uh, but it definitely crossed the Rubicon like years ago. It became a hybrid regime, which is um, in which both the quality of governance and the quality of democracy have been deteriorated. And in Poland, is, I think Poland is not there yet. I mean, it's it's rapidly shifting towards the same direction. But Jaroslav Kaczynski's Poland, I think it experienced rather democratic backsliding uh, at a greater length. Uh, so it was like decline from liberal democracy to electoral democracy. Uh, and it is rapidly uh, catching up with Hungary. But there are some institutional guarantees that are slowing this down. And this brings me to my last third point, uh, this last uh, distinguished factor, which is about the the importance of decentralization and multi-level governance in in Poland, because I think it serves as kind of a security break here. Um, So strong local municipalities, very strong civil society organizations on the local level, it matters a lot because it can actually act as a counterbalancing towards national level populism and authoritarianism. There is also, you know, a, a second, like the, 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 uh, the upper house can slow things down and President Duda has, has a powerful veto, uh, veto power to, to also to, to block things. So, so there is a, so to say, 
different kind of institutional, you know, setup. And there is also a very uh, well-functioning free market with a very diverse uh, media media market as well. And I just named a few things which doesn't exist in Hungary uh, in Hungary anymore because uh, you know the political decision making has been a lot more centralized at the first place. But most importantly, because checks and balances have been completely hollowed out. Uh, in, in, in Budapest and local governances have been weakened and and the most crucial difference is that uh, that the, the, the you know free free market uh, economy has been has been also like butchered where uh, you know the clientelistic network of, of the prime minister have gained a dominant position not only in the media but also in the most important economic sectors in Hungary. Got it. Well, that's all very helpful in uh, distinguishing between what's going on in Hungary and, and what's going on in Poland. Um, but, you know, as, as you were talking, I realized that I'd recently had a conversation or, you know, online conversation anyway, with a couple of people who I generally regard as exceptionally well-informed. And, you know, they said, well, we've never heard this term illiberal democracy. And I realized that you know, that might, it might be useful. I mean, it's particularly Hungarian kind of idea, I suppose. Uh, but it'd be useful, I think, if you could explain for people what that means. I mean, it involves many of the factors that you've just been describing. But uh, is that particularly a kind of Hungarian thing? I mean, I was struck uh, by some of the things that Orban has been saying about you know, LGBTQ rights and uh, other issues of gender identity and how they actually sort of, uh, sort of remember, uh, resembled, sorry, um, some of the things that Vladimir Putin was recently saying uh, in this big speech in which he kind of declared war on the West and its culture. So, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what does this mean? What is this notion of illiberal democracy? These people I was communicating with basically thought liberalism and democracy were somehow, you know, something that went hand in hand. And I would say, generally speaking, we agree with that. Um, but how would you uh, sort of describe also this larger dimension and how much is that an issue in Poland as opposed to in Hungary? I hope that makes sense. Sure. Um, okay, so let me let me try to explain and describe the way how the very concept of illiberal democracy have been used, misused, and captured by by the Hungarian government. So the the way how they were, you know, how Viktor Orban has been presenting it in two thousand and fourteen, it was it was this kind of infamous speech in Romania at Beltusnad when he said that you know the they're aiming to build an illiberal democracy. They were pushing this notion and presenting this notion as a as a positive notion, not as a as something which is like a you know deteriorated form form of democracy or the or the interpretation of Farid Zakaria or anyone else you know in in, in political science. They are claiming that illiberal democracies are defective democracies in a sense that you know although the 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 government is like uh, like maintaining and running elections, but at the same time it is undermining. Uh, uh, the, the, you know the very liberal principles of of, of democracy and and uh, you know the protection and human rights and so on and so forth. So they, uh, Victor Orban has been presenting it as something rather positive notion by referring to Singapore, Turkey, uh, back then you know Russia and so on and so forth by claiming that 
a democratic institutional basis should not necessarily be like uh, be based on on liberal principles uh, in order to make it economically efficient. Um, so he was pursuing this kind of notion of building up a work work based democracy, where, for instance. Um, um, Social handouts shouldn't be like directly given to to people who are deprived, but rather would be needed to be provided with opportunity structures to work. But the trick is that no matter what he said in 2014, this was kind of like a, a speech which have been framing and and also to explaining to some extent what happened after uh, the government took over in 2010. And this was exactly, you know, get, getting back to the notion of, of illiberal democracy, meaning undermining the liberal principles of democracy. Uh, and I would certainly describe it uh, on a normative basis as an oxymoron, because, you know, if we, if we deprive democracy of its liberal uh, principles, meaning the protection of minority rights, the constraints on checks and balances and the executive power or the, of the self-governance of the people, then I think that democracy itself becomes merely formal and it is being deprived of itself, so to say, protection at the same time. So I would certainly uh, step away from, uh, you know, from describing Hungary uh, as, as an illiberal democracy, not only because, uh, it, as I said, it has been used and misused politically by the government, but at the same time, because I think uh, not only by now, but also by 2014, the Hungarian system have gone beyond any kind of system which can be described as liberal. It is becoming more and more autocratic. It has become you know, a hybrid regime uh, by 2016 and 18, and all the democracy indices and all the you know the, the global rating bodies are declaring that that Hungary is beyond the point of uh, of, of of any kind of like democratic category and it is rapidly shifting uh, towards uh, you know it's not a full-fledged uh, dictatorship, but this is certainly in the gray zone um, and a lot closer to autocracy than, than to, to democracy. Right. But then there's these sort of culture war aspects that I was also referring to. I mean, is that part of the illiberal democratic project, so to speak? Uh, I mean, is this a characteristic of what's going on in contemporary Poland or is this really just a, a kind of Hungarian and Russian thing? Is it connected at all to the Ukraine uh, war? I mean, the the fact that uh, Orban is saying some of the same kinds of things that Putin is saying about, you know, the, 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 this description of the West essentially as decadent, right? Um, and particularly in regard to issues of gender and sexuality. Um, how do you see that fitting into this larger picture? And is it, a, is it also characteristic of what's going on in Poland, or is that not a feature in Poland? It definitely is, and in order to you know to to get a better understanding about that, I think it's 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 very if we do it throughout you know the the explanatory paradigm of populism because what you just explained or mentioned about Hungary and Poland, this kind of um, you know like uh, blaming the decadent West European Union, uh, and and from Hungarian perspective also the, the 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 democratic leadership of the United States, it nicely fits into the broader context of, of uh, right-wing uh, populism in, in Hungary, but also in Poland. So this way of thinking, like, you know, uh, polarizing the society between us versus them, it goes 
hand in hand with the notion of the corrupt elite, the local opposition is cooperating with the decadent West um, in order to undermine national sovereignty and to impose um, values that are not necessarily, you know, fitting the local cultural, socio-cultural kind of setting, meaning, um, you know, the protection of the LGBTQ like minorities, uh, the protection of women when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, reproductive rights and so on and so forth. And if you have a, you know, like from the bird perspective, take a look at at the Polish and the Hungarian uh, government, I think they're very much like similar to what we're witnessing in, in, in Western European countries or in the United States about right-wing populism in a sense that this whole kind of powers, um, cultural uh, power struggle, as you just mentioned, it nicely fits this kind of um, uh, notion of... Um, blaming the the decadent West and the the historical cultural kind of decay of modernity and and the West um, uh, about everything all economic and political hardship that these governments would need to face uh, you know on the local local ground just give you one example um, the, the latest development in Hungary is that there is going to be a national consultation which is about uh, blaming the the European Union sanctions against Russia uh, for all economic hardship that Hungary has to face right now, and this is a crucial moment because the economic situation hasn't been so severe as it is right now since, like you know, the the, the eurozone crisis. So this is really huge. Uh, the, the 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 Hungarian economy is in in an, in a very difficult situation. So what they do is that they blame everything on the European Union, on the American leadership. Situation is a little bit different in Poland because yes, it is very much Eurosceptic and it is very much di- you know like I would say directed towards uh, Western Europe and in particular Germany, uh, not necessarily and not that much towards towards the United States. But the messages are very similar. You know, we have to protect our traditional way of living. The traditional family is the very last bastion that we have to protect against the blatant attack of modernity and you know the West, which is under the influence of neo-Marxist kind of (laughs) conspirators who are collaborating with, uh, you know, sinister, uh, I don't know, platforms like Google and Amazon. So I think we can identify interesting opportunity structures, synergy structures here. So this is not only um, kind of uh, um, against neoliberalism uh, kind of uh, thing, but also they're, you know, connecting it with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with anti-gender movement. And there is also a great sort of uh, cooperation between these right-wing uh, populist parties and traditionalist extremist organizations, for instance, like Ordo Juris in Poland. So they're pushing the same envelope when it comes to reproductive rights and, you know, restricting abortions or, I don't know, pushing back um, human rights organizations that are protecting LGBTQ minorities. So we can nicely connect the dots. Um, and, and, and when it comes to Hungary, this is even more prominently, you know, overlapping with um, uh, with pro-Russian narratives and, you know, organizations such as, I don't know, World Congress of Families, where which is obviously a, uh, an international network and platform of, of, you know, of the Kremlin in order to pursue their kind of weaponization of culture at the end of the day. Right. So a lot of this, as you were sort of hinting, um, has played out as a kind of conflict with the European Union, with Brussels. And... Um, 
you know, the differences that you've pointed to between um, uh, Poland and Hungary have sort of been heightened by their respective stances towards the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Uh, the Poles, in some ways, you know, following their historic relationship or antagonistic relationship with uh, Russia have been, you know, very pro-EU uh, and, and pro-Ukraine and have taken in millions of uh, millions of refugees from Ukraine. We actually did a uh, podcast about that some weeks ago. Uh, and Hungary has taken a very different position. And so that is to say, essentially, a more pro-Russian uh, position. And so as I say, a lot of this has played out as a kind of conflict with Brussels, uh, which many people think should be sanctioning both of these countries um, for their, you know, refusal to institute or, or uh, sort of defend, you know, checks and balances and civil liberties and that sort of thing. So could you talk a little bit about that and about how the Ukraine situation is affecting the EU's efforts or, you know, expectations that the EU will impose sanctions on these countries because of their governmental behavior? Okay, I guess it just it boils down to the question of like how the foreign policy vectors of these two governments are, you know, facing a very oppositional kind of direction when it comes to Russia. So I would probably start start with that. Um, so I mean, I, I don't want to speak like the obvious here, but the Russian war is like really like a matter of security and a matter of like self-identification for Poland. And it is based partly on this kind of so-called anti-morale narrative, which is uh, pursuing that, you know, uh, it, it's very much anchored in the Polish conservative political thinking in Poland. It's, it's, uh, it's projecting uh, Poland as a, as a protector of Christianity, you know, both from the barbaric East, like Russia, and from the barbaric West, like Germany. Uh, and Russia is definitely the greatest existential threat here in this, in this, in this equation, you know, like, uh, which means that, you know, all the territories with Polish minorities in specific need to be protected at all costs. So, so Ukraine, you know, goes without saying but but this is not really the case uh you know for the hungarian government the hungarian government is still not really considering russia as a direct security threat uh rather to the contrary i mean they seek to maintain a very good relationship with with the kremlin uh and slowing down you know and harshly criticizing the eu sanctions that is said um so so uh, prime minister viktor orban has been strengthening this economic and political ties with russia for a decade now despite the annex annexation of crimea and right now the war um and as i just mentioned you know this national consultation uh that has been just launched uh, this week in hungary it's 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 a complete propaganda tool it is promoting as i said you know brussels as you know totally responsible for for economic hardship but most importantly um it it doesn't say a word about the war in ukraine or the responsibility of russia uh in you know in, in waging a war on ukraine and it comes along with this robust national uh billboard campaign financed by state funds and it using very use powerful visuals so you can see billboards right now in in hungary depicting brussels that is you know throwing bombs on hungary and that this is really like scary. The bomb is a symbol of the sanctions against Russia, and it's it's also ridiculous. So um, uh, 
Um, but but again, the consultation is about strengthening the Eurosceptic and pro-Russian narratives uh, of, of the governing party. Um, why? Because this is the beginning of the winter season. There is, as I said, a lot of you know troubles economic-wise. And so later on, Viktor Orban can blame the EU, why Hungary is not able to heat up homes and public buildings properly because, you know, uh, lack of lack of energy resources, for instance. So 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 this is certainly an issue, um, you know, where, where these two governments are never going to be on the same page. And uh, yes, PIS is also Eurosceptic, but when it comes to the, the role of the Kremlin uh, and the geopolitics of, of Russia, these two governments will never going to be on the same page for sure. Right. So how do you think this is all going to play out? I mean, you've already mentioned that Hungary is in a difficult situation already uh, economically, but of course, inflation is sort of spreading across Europe and elsewhere in the world for that matter. Um, And there's no real sign of, you know, a ceasefire negotiations, a resolution to the conflict, any of that really, Uh, none of that's really in sight. And, you know, I think it's long been thought that it was Putin's strategy in part to, um, you know, make it, difficult for Europeans to maintain a pro-Ukrainian stance uh, as the winter approaches in particular and heat, uh, you know, becomes more expensive and that sort of thing. So how do you see this playing out in the two countries? I mean, Hungary has adopted this, um, you know, sort of um, pro-Russian stance uh, and is in better shape, I suppose, with regard to things like gas that will be used for heat. Um, how do you think this is all going to play out in the, as, the, as the winter descends and um, people start to get cold and things keep getting more expensive? Okay, so the question is whether it's going to have a negative impact on the durability of the regime and that they're going to fall soon or Poland is going to, PIS is going to lose elections, the upcoming elections. Do I understand it correctly? Um, Well, I'm I'm sort of curious, you know, how their divergent stances are going to affect their added. I mean, I don't know, like, what the Hungarian population, as opposed to Viktor Orban's, you know, perspective or stance vis-a-vis the war uh, has been. But so the question is, what's the popular kind of response going to be? I mean, I was just reading something in this morning's New York Times about Italy. And, you know, a lot of people apparently saying, you know, everything's getting too expensive. It's caused by the Ukraine war. So we should stop, you know, sending all these weapons to Ukraine. We should stop you know, sending all this money uh, because it's starting to hurt us. And I think that's been, you know, as I say, thought to be a kind of predictable outcome. Um, You know, there's questions, in other words, about the popular uh, enthusiasm for this conflict, Um, you know, whether they have any real control over what happens is a different question, but uh, how much people, you know, ordinary people sort of are prepared to support this conflict and or Ukraine in the conflict and, um, you know, how it differs in the two countries, one of which has been quite supportive of Ukraine and the other which has been you know, not supportive. 
Okay, um, so I don't want to tap into, you know, research field where I don't have <laughs> valuable data to share you with. So I would rather step away from the public attitudes and I would rather get back to, I think this is going to come down at the end of the day about whether there is going to be an agreement between these countries and the European Union. And this is where I can provide some expertise. Um, Great. <laughs> because uh, I think that that's what's crucial. And this is what is going to have a very crucial impact on the on the operation of, of, of this regime, um, whether they can deliver to their, um, you know, uh, to their to their voters or not. Uh, and I believe that the Hungarian government is in a better situation in this regard. Um, so uh, so so the thing is that and I wanted to talk a little bit about that when we were, you know, teasing out the differences between Hungary and Hungary and Poland, that um uh, I think what's fundamentally and like crucially shapes democratic backsliding in these countries is not necessarily what you know we were talking about this kind of formal legal changes, violation of the constitution, and you know the undermining of checks and balances and and the human rights. Yes, I mean we know about that. There is tons of research on that. Everybody has been discussing it back and forth, but the problem is that you know these are the things which have been. Um, so to say, partly addressed by the EU institutions, uh, not too successfully, but at least there were some intentions to to, to address it, you know, like with, with the legal tools of the European Union, with which uh, the, the European Union cannot do that much is that these regimes are rather operating under the legal radar of the European Union by imposing and misusing informal power in these countries. Now, this is my main field of expertise, and by main, you know, by my informal power, I mean uh, I'm, I'm thinking about clientelist corruption, informal media capture, and electoral clientelism. So. Different kind of, uh, you know, building up uh, like structures which are based on uh, interdependencies, coercion, intimidation of the, you know, the business elite, the the electorate, and so on and so forth. So this is something uh, which is definitely a lot more difficult for, uh, you know, for any kind of international organization to address because this is usually happening in a very uncodified way. Um, there, there's also like a lot of literature saying that this is the most difficult, you know, to address it um, from a legal perspective so uh, and this is where you know the, the the negotiation with the with the with the European Union comes into the picture because um, although um, the EU institutions couldn't really slow down this democratic backsliding for like years uh, this year the European Commission seems to have started to take its role seriously by withholding the the EU funds from these countries um, and as per usual the Hungarian government is um, it's, it's acting in a very tricky way. I mean, it's showing willingness to comply with the formal legal requests of Brussels to undercut, for instance, clientelist corruption. They say that they're going to, you know, introduce legislative changes. There is going to be like a huge breakthrough and they're going to establish new institutions like anti-corruption bodies, for instance, you know, um, at the end of the day in order to, you know, to fulfill the expectations of Brussels. Um, and this is what I, you know, not only me, but the literature also called this is like symbol, symbolical creative compliances. So uh, they're they're doing they're doing making like great legislative promises, but at the end of the day, they're getting around it, you know, and maintaining political favoritism and you know reallocating EU funds uh, the way they they see fit within their own uh, you know clientelist uh, structures and. Um, 
And the, what we see is that, uh, anyhow, the, the, the government is becoming very uh, cooperative uh, for very good reasons, as I said, because the, the state finances are in a lot worse situation than, and shape than in, in 2008 during the Eurozone. Um, and, and they simply need, the, need the, you know, the EU funds. And also the European Union cannot afford that. There is going to be you know, a bankrupting uh, the government uh, going down this road of economic bankruptcy. So, um, so I think it's going to be a crucial litmus test for the Commission whether they're going to fall again for this kind of creative uh, compliance, or they're going to push the envelope to establish, you know, real accountability structures. Um, it's it's a matter of time we're going to see it before Christmas, I think. And I think the Polish government is a lot more worse situation because you know here in Poland the access to the European funds it became a hostage of a domestic political power struggle. So um, the parliamentary elections are in the doorway next year and there is a constant power struggle within the ruling camp between the Eurosceptic uh, PIS and the hardcore even more anti-European flank which is led by you know the justice minister Zbigniew Jobro so and it has a it has a crucial impact on the strategic behavior of the Polish government because this power struggle makes sure that the Polish uh, uh, government will not fulfill any you know rule of law requirements of, of the European Commission the Poland uh, the Polish government still hasn't complied with the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. And there has been also a change in the Polish foreign ministry recently, which shows that there is not, they're not going to willing to do so, to try to comply uh, with, with the requirements. So uh, rather to the contrary, what I see is that the Polish government is fueling this fight with external enemies like Germany and the EU right now. And this is going to be a very cold winter, as we just discussed. And the campaign is all about inflation and, you know, the missing coal supplies uh, and not receiving this recovery and EU cohesion funds, which is being withheld uh, for uh, Poland right now, it could seriously shake the image of the Polish government that it can actually deliver to the people because it has been, you know, running on this ticket of we are the can-do party, we can, you know, keep our promises. And John, let me uh, emphasize that I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not predicting that uh, the PAS government is going to fall and there is going to be a shift in power next year. But I think that history taught us that populist autocrats can actually maintain power even despite economic hardship. So I, I think this is pretty much like still cl- too close to call. Not to mention that one year in politics, it's way too long you know, to predict anything. Right. Well, we'll have to see how all this plays out. I mean, the controversy between the EU and uh, these two countries is obviously a major factor in the whole situation. And so is the war. So we're going to have to wait and see how all this plays out. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Edith Zgudbzhvilska, I hope that's halfway right, uh, for sharing her thoughts on the similarities and differences in the illiberal politics of contemporary Hungary and Poland. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Meryl Sobner for her production assistance and Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you.